Good morning, Watermark. How are we doing? Oh, it's so good to see your faces, to be together in person. For those of us that are joining us online or in one of the overflow rooms around our campus, we are so glad that you've joined us and we're glad to get together. As Mickey mentioned, we are rolling on in our series on 1 Timothy, we're calling Focus. We've actually got three weeks left before we wrap this bad boy up. And it's been, uh, I don't know about you guys, but for, for me, I've been encouraged and I've been challenged and I've been reminded as we've worked through this amazing little letter that Paul wrote to his, um, his co-laborer, Timothy. And we're gonna get to dive in more this morning and, and work our way through uh, more of chapter five. Before I do that, I wanted to just share a, kind of a funny story. My wife and I celebrated our uh, 22nd wedding anniversary back in September. And um, we were in the midst of just a lot of life. And so we, we decided, hey, we're gonna just carve off 24 hours to get away. And so we, we got a hotel downtown and just left the kids and um, said, hey, we'll be back, <laughs> back tomorrow. And, and off we went. And so one of the things we did while we were uh, on our sabbatical for 24 hours is we went for a walk on the Katy Trail which is a great little uh, gem we've got here in Dallas, if you've never checked it out. And so as we're walking, as we get onto the trail, I, I kind of laughed to, and I was chuckling at myself. And I, I shared with my wife the story that like about seven years ago, I was on the Katy Trail um, going for a run. And um, uh, as I was running on the trail, I noticed coming the other direction from me was Troy Aikman. And uh, now you need to know that Troy Aikman is, was like my childhood hero. Um, my dad, uh, for the, by the way, for those of you who, if you don't know who Troy Aikman is, my goodness, he is, uh, was the greatest quarterback uh, in the history of the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, for sure. And um, my dad played football at UCLA in the 60s, and Troy Aikman played at UCLA, and, and the head coach at the time when I was in junior high was a classmate of my dad's, a teammate of my dad's. And so I got to go to UCLA and see Troy uh, like in the spring of 87, and his senior year of spring training. And, and then I watched him become the cowboy of America's greatest team and lead us to three Super Bowls. And, and I just, man, Troy Aikman was my, was my hero. And so I passed him on the Katy Trail. And I just, I, I was tempted to turn around and follow him. And I was like, that would be creepy. Um, and I didn't. And so I was sharing that story with Missy as we jumped on the Katy Trail like two months ago. And I kid you not, two minutes later, who comes walking the other direction? Troy freaking Aikman. And uh, now you need to know that normally when, I'm, when I see, you know, celebrities, I'm, I'm normally like not the guy, but something came over me and I, I couldn't control myself. And uh, I, said, I said, I said, Troy, I said, Troy, I said, I was literally just telling my wife how I saw you on this very trail like six years ago. And he looked at me with the most disinterested, disgusted, like, what is wrong with you? Look, and I was, and I, I was just like so flustered and so humiliated that, that here was my childhood hero and I just whiffed. And my wife uh, thought that was great. She took advantage to, to giggle with me about what an idiot I looked at myself. This was my childhood hero and all I wanted to do was to honor my childhood hero and I just stepped in it. It was awful. And... Uh, you know, when we want to honor people, like we want to do it well. And thankfully, God's word helps us know how to not do what I did with the great Troy Aikman, number eight, on the Katy Trail. And I share that because the section of scripture we're going to be looking at this morning is going to talk about how do we honor people. Specifically, how do we honor people who are in authority over our lives? 
So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I know that story is not like super tight, but it's a funny story. And, and uh, I thought it'd be fun to share with you guys what an idiot it looked like as I tried to honor my hero. And I don't want you, God doesn't want us to look like idiots. He doesn't want us to, to whiff. He wants us to know how to honor uh, those in our life and, and specifically those in authority. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be in, um, we're going to start in verse 17. We're going to go through the first couple of verses in chapter 6. I want to, I want to read the whole section to you and then we'll dive in. By the way, somebody asked me not too long ago, why do I read, um, why do I read the whole section that we're going to cover when we're together? I try to, if it's not like, if we're not going to study the, an overview of Isaiah. Um, and the reason I do that is because, uh, as I've shared before, the Bible was not written in verse-by-verse nuggets. The basic unit of thought in your Bible is the paragraph, okay? And so it's easy for us to pull stuff out, but the parts only make sense in light of the whole. And so I want you to hear the whole passage together because that passage is how it was meant to be read. It wasn't meant to be read one verse at a time. So that's why I do that in case you were wondering why I take the time. So starting in verse 17, chapter 5, 1 Timothy, let the elders who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, uh, even those that are, that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are believers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay. So last week, John Elmore taught us, shared from us from the first part of chapter 5, about the way that the church is to honor widows. And he did an amazing job. If you weren't here or didn't get to tune into that, I would highly recommend you go back and, and watch John's sermon from last week. And he talked about that when we honor widows, we honor them by financially providing for them and by caring for them. But Paul is going to continue this theme of honor. And he's going to look at how we honor two other groups of individuals, two other groups of people. And this whole section, both what John covered last week and what I'm going to cover this week, is all tied together by the word honor. It's what connects this section together. Now, before we go any further, let me just define what does the word honor mean? How does the New Testament use that term? And really in the New Testament, the word honor carries two primary meanings. There's more, but the way it's used most primarily is in two ways. One is to honor, is to, is to recognize or show respect. Think like Ephesians 6.2 where it says children are to honor their father and mother. They're to, they're to show their parents uh, the respect and the appreciation that is due them because of who they are and their role in the, in the child's life. So that's the first definition, is to, is to recognize or to show respect. The second definition, that the way the word is used in the New Testament, is that honor is to financially provide for or compensate. 
you know, we think about the term honorarium. You guys have heard that term, an honorarium. It is what you, what you pay somebody uh, who's likely not asking for it or, or looking for it. It's what you pay somebody for a service they provided. And so when the New Testament uses the word honor, it is most often using it in one of those two contexts, one of those two definitions, to, to show respect and appreciation or to financially provide for. So there's a financial component to it, okay? So that's when I use the word honor this morning, that's what the word means. And as we see in these verses this week and both last week, we are to honor widows, we're to honor elders, and we're to honor um, masters. And those three groups of people, uh, widows, elders, and masters, can be divided into two groups. Last week we looked at we honor those who have no authority. And on the social spectrum of the first century, a widow was on the far end of the spectrum. She had no authority in society, okay? And, but yet we're, we're to honor those widows. On the other side, we are to honor those who do have authority, who, those who do carry authority. And we're going to be looking uh, at elders. And we're going to see today that as it relates to elders, we're called to honor leadership through appreciation, provision, through shepherding, and through thoughtfully appointing them to leadership. And we're also going to look in the couple of verses in chapter 6 at honoring those uh, uh, who are in authority over us. We're going to look at slave masters. And I know that topic is a hot topic. And so I want you to stick with me as we unpack and try and make sense of what God's word says as it relates to that, okay? So that's where we're going. Now, this passage breaks up really nicely uh, into, into four sections. The first section is about honoring authority. We honor those who rule well through appreciation and provision. And I just want to remind you, as we look at honoring those who are in authority within the church, I want to remind you, as I shared a couple weeks back when we studied First Timothy 3, the qualifications for an elder and a deacon, that leadership is a big deal. Leadership really matters. And it especially matters in the household of God because those of us in leadership within the church, as we teach and as we think about ministry strategy and how we're going to serve the lost, it's a big deal. We are shepherding the souls of men and women. And that's a big deal. And Scripture takes that a big deal. When we make decisions um, that are in line with God's word, that, um, that, that are, are backed by wisdom and thoughtfulness and care, the church is blessed. Those at Watermark are blessed when, when leaders lead that way. And when leaders don't lead that way, when they don't lead well, it's a tragedy. It's a disaster. And it has significant consequences. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And so when the church is led well, the Bible, the Bible tells us how we're to respond to those in leadership when they rule well. And when the church is not led well, as we're going to see today, Scripture tells us how we're to navigate those waters, okay? So let's unpack this first section, verse 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the labor deserves its wages. So first, let's just acknowledge that this is a little bit awkward. I'm an elder, and I'm doing my best to preach this morning. And I'm reading to you a passage that says, hey, guys in leadership that are doing what I'm doing are worthy of double honor. Kind of weird. And so I want you to know, like, I'm not going to throw out a, my Venmo account, you know, at, at elders who rule well or, uh, uh, or anything like that. Because I want you to remember, this is a first century context is what's going on here. And, and the way the early church was providing for its leadership was not the way that we do it. I mean, it was in the sense of it takes financial provision, but you're not writing a check to David Leventhal. You're supporting the mission, okay, of which I'm, I get to be a part of. In the early church, 
You know, in these house churches, it was a different structure. It was a different system. And so Paul wants to make sure that those who are leading are provided for. So that said, why does Paul teach that elders who rule well are worthy of double honor? Well, let me remind you what we've been talking about through this whole series. The church in Ephesus was, um, was being taken over, being overrun by false teachers. And these false teachers, some of them appear to have been elders in the church. And they were not leading well. And they were, they were pulling some off sides. They were uh, teaching false things. They were, uh, as Paul would describe to Timothy in 2 Timothy, um, they were uh, pulling some of the widows away. They were not blessing the church. And so when you have elders and leaders who aren't ruling well, who aren't leading well, it takes the other folks on the leadership to stand up and say, listen, we're not going to do this. We're going we're to address the sin that's going on in the body. And when you do that, when you have to stand up to false teachers, that's, that's a big deal. And by the way, I want to remind you, as we talked about already, like Paul, Paul specifically warned the Ephesian elders, okay? Because remember, Timothy's at Ephesus. Paul had previously warned these men in Acts 20 that false teachers were going to come. So these guys who were leading the church had a heads up. And we read in Acts 20, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, these men he's talking to now, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish you. And the primary task of an elder is to protect the flock. That's the primary task of an elder. That's one of the things uh, on the elder team that we spend our time doing is trying to make sure we're protecting the flock because souls are at stake. It's a big deal. And when you hold up God's word as the plumb line for what is right and wrong, not the culture, when you say this is what God's word says is right, you are opening yourselves up to be a target, to be misunderstood, to be hated, to be villainized, to be called all sorts of things, okay? That's what happens when you lead well. And Paul says, the guys who are doing that, the leadership in the church, they're worthy of double honor. And listen, those of us that have decided to jump into this line of work, and I'm not just talking about guys like me up here, but I'm talking about our pastoral staff in general. Those who decide to jump into this line of work, you, you understand that as you go and minister to the community, as you are the face oftentimes, for what God's word says, that's going to create some frustrations and some anger and some hatred as you define and you describe what God's word says about the brokenness of humanity, about the exclusivity of Jesus, about what is God's view on the sanctity of life, what is God's view on uh, how we're to treat the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, about marriage, about sexuality. To do that is to be criticized. And listen, pastors aren't bulletproof, okay? Those who lead in the church, we're, we're as capable and culpable for discouragement and doubts and disillusionment as anybody. And, you know, just because it doesn't look like an arterial bleed out doesn't mean it's not happening, okay? Pastors, like you guys, go through those periods of discouragement. And sometimes I think people think that because you're on staff at a church, somehow you've, you've opted out of those opportunities. And that's just not true. And Paul says, listen, those men, those folks who are leading well are worthy of double honor. 
And he goes on to quote two verses to make his point. Deuteronomy 25, which is like, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing out grain, which is, you know, I guess being compared to an ox, being compared to words. But the idea is that if God cares about the ox while he's working, how much more does he care about those who are leading the bride of Christ in the household of God? And he goes on to quote Jesus, who when he sent out the 72 to go uh, minister in the community in, in, in Luke 10, Jesus says to the 72, hey, go out. I've given you authority. When you go into a town, stay there and, and stay there the whole time and let them feed and provide for you because the worker deserves his wages. And so that's who Paul quotes as, as evidence of, of why we should do this. And I want you to know, as Mickey just said earlier, I am so, we are so thankful for, the body, for this body, for the generosity of this body that has allowed us to minister to the community, to those within these doors. I mean, this year in report, I mean, my goodness, like it's, sometimes it's easy to forget like that all these stories, uh, these statistics and these things, like each one of these represents people, represents your neighbors, represents your coworkers, represents folks you bump into in the grocery store. Like life change is happening and it's happening through the generosity of this body. So well done. You are honoring the leadership of this church in the way you care and provide for. So when elders and pastoral staff and other leaders within the church rule well, they should be encouraged, appreciated, and provided for. And so you may ask, well, how do I do that? Let me give you some, some ways you can practice that. One, you can pray. You can pray for those on this church staff who lead, who teach, who disciple, who serve, not just guys that are up here on the weekends, but all over this body at, at, at Summit, at Women's Bible Study, at the Collective, at Shoreline, and at Wake, and at Region, all over this campus uh, where ministries are occurring. You can pray that God would protect them from sin, from discouragement, from uh, pride, from temptation. Uh, that is a blessing. Like, you need to know, like, every, uh, when I jumped on the elder team about three years ago, a guy sent me a text and said, hey, I want to be praying for you. And do you know that every Thursday, just about every Thursday, I get a text from this guy. And he says, hey, how can I pray for you? What are you praying? What are the things going on? What can, what can I do to lift you up in your family? And he writes them down. And he keeps track and he sends me updates. And then when he's done praying, he laminates this prayer sheet and mails it to me. He's been doing that for almost three years. And do you know how much that blesses my heart to know that I am being prayed for? Because I can be an idiot. I can go off the rails in a moment. But it's the prayers of the saints who are help upholding not just me, but this church. So you can pray. You can encourage notes, letters, phone calls. Those of you who have kids in Wake and in Shoreline and you've got young adults pouring into your kids, you can invite them over for dinner. You can feed them. You can show your appreciation through encouragement. You can speak well of them to others. Like I'm talking about, like don't, don't gossip about the, the leadership of the church. If you've got an issue and you think there's a sin issue, come to us. We're accessible, the leadership of this church. Go to your community group leader. And, and they'll very quickly loop us in if we need to. If, you're, if you think that we're in sin, pull out the conflict field guide and come see us. But don't, don't gossip about us out in the community. I had, a, I had a guy come up to me a couple weeks ago, a guy that I know and trust and love. And he said, hey, Lev, I, I think it would serve you better if you did not wear T-shirts when you teach, if you wore button-down shirts. Okay. Button-down shirt. <laughs> now, listen, I don't mind that feedback. Now, if, if five other people had come to me and said, did you hear what he said about the way you look on Sundays? That'd be a bit of a discouragement. It might still be true, but it'd be a bit of a discouragement. So don't gossip or don't, don't dog leadership to others. If you have an issue, a sin issue, come to us. And then continue to be generous. The generosity of this body is what allowed us for 21 years 
to keep serving this body and this community through the intentional, purposeful, thoughtful giving of this body. And so you can continue to, to honor and appreciate the staff, the leadership team at Walmart by, by continuing to be generous. We honor those who rule well through appreciation and provision. We also shepherd authority. We shepherd those who aren't ruling well by rebuking them and, if necessary, removing them. So Paul says, like, this is how you respond to those who are leading well, and this is how you respond to those who are not. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy, keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. And so in this section, Paul is going to give Timothy three clear instructions for how to shepherd an elder who is not leading well. An elder who is in persistent, unrepentant sin. That's the category that Paul's talking about. And these instructions follow a very similar path that God laid out uh, for Moses in Deuteronomy 19. One, you assess the charge. When someone brings an accusation against a leader in the church... That charge needs to be validated. You don't just, because there is a lot of smear activity that could happen in any leadership position. And so you want to make sure, hey, is this a person that's just got a bone to pick, an axe to grind, or is there a legitimate offense? And he says, Timothy, you have to assess that charge. You need to make sure you do the work to figure out what's really going on here. Is there a problem with a leader in the church? Do the homework. Two, you've got to respond to that charge. If you discover, Timothy, as Timothy discovered in the church in Ephesus, that there are elders or leaders within the staff, the church staff, who are in persistent, unrepentant sin, you are called to act on that. First privately, Jesus tells us you go to an individual privately, and then you widen the circle. And for those who are in leadership, that circle gets widened to the entire congregation. Why? So that the congregation, Paul says, may stand in fear. Fear of what? Fear of knowing that sin is a really big deal. Genesis 4, like God says, listen, to uh, uh, um, Cain, he said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to devour you if you don't get it under control. And so Paul wants the church to be aware when you are sinning in persistent, unrepentant sin, it is a big, big deal, not just for the elders, not just for the leaders, but for all of us. And three, Timothy, you need to guard the process you want to make sure you maintain absolute impartiality. You're not, you're not um, picking on a guy that you just don't get along with, and you're not glossing over a sin issue because it's somebody that you have known for a really long time. You want to follow these instructions, Timothy, with absolute uh, impartiality, okay? We shepherd those who aren't ruling well by rebuking them and, if necessary, removing them. And listen, this is appropriate for, for not just for conflict and sin in the, in the leadership team, but for conflict and sin in, in, in your life and in those that you're in a community group with, if you've got a brother or sister who's in sin, you need to go to them if they're a believer and address the sin. This, isn't, this whole idea isn't just for leadership. This is a, applicable to all of us. And number three, we, uh, we honor authority by thoughtfully appointing people to leadership with great patience and great thoughtfulness. He goes on, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but drink a little wine because you've got some health issues. The sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not conspicuous, that are not easily seen, cannot remain hidden. And so now Paul moves on, because if you've got elders who rule well, man, you want to fan that flame. If you've got elders who aren't ruling well, who aren't leading well and persistent, unrepentant, you've got to remove them. 
And when you remove them, you may need to replace them. And so Paul wants to remind Timothy, when you have to replace an elder, be thoughtful, be patient. Don't be hasty and laying on hands. Paul has already told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, 6, that an elder must not be a recent convert. Listen, I was a member at this church for 16 years before I entered into what was about a year-long process before being added to the elder team. We don't do things hastily around here. Hastily is not like uh, weeks and months. We don't do things hastily as in months and years. We want to make sure we're trying as best we can discern that a guy or a gal is, a, is ready for leadership within the church. Don't take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. If Timothy were to fail to rebuke those unrepentant elders who were in persistent sin, then he would be participating in their sin. And if Timothy were to appoint to leadership men who did not meet the qualifications of an elder as described in 1 Timothy 3, and he would just kind of overlook that because he was, they were golfing buddies, that would be participating in sin. When we ignore sin, we enable sin. And when we enable sin, we take part in that sin. And so if we see sin in another believer's life and we don't address it, we're, we're taking part of it. And listen, you and I, we are not responsible for changing somebody's behavior. Do you understand me? That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to lovingly, gently, thoughtfully, with great patience and careful instruction, to point out when somebody in our life is not acting in accordance with what God says. That's what we're called to do. And then we let the Spirit do the work of convicting. And if they're in a position of leadership and they don't respond, we have steps on how we'll respond to that. And he says no longer, he kind of puts this little parenthetical statement here, no longer only drink water but drink a little wine. What, what in the world is that all about? That's, that seems sort of out of nowhere. Well, what, what, what Paul is doing is at the end of that previous verse, don't take part in the sins of others, keep yourself pure. And I think Paul is reminding as he's working this letter together, oh, yeah, there are some in the church, as we've already studied a couple chapters earlier, who were saying, hey, you, you, they were forbidding marriage. They were forbidding certain foods. And Paul says, Timothy, you need to keep yourself pure. But by the way, listen, for you, that doesn't mean you can't have wine. In fact, Timothy, because of some of the health issues that you have, you should drink a little wine. Because in the first century, wine was very frequently given as, like, for medicinal purposes. I don't know if it worked or not, but that was what they did. Is, hey, wine was like a common drink for medicinal purposes. And Paul says, listen, when I say keep yourself pure, I don't mean don't have wine. And I know that there are people in, there are leaders in the body who are saying you can't get married and you can't eat and drink certain things. That's not what I'm talking about, Timothy. And so, buddy, for your health, get a little bit of Pinot Noir in your system. The sins of others of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. And the reality is that none of us are perfect at assessing individuals. Sometimes we can clearly see the train wreck that is somebody. Like, their reputation precedes them. You're like, okay. Like, it's very clear to me that you are wheels off that your life is in shambles. Um, and I can see that in a very quick conversation. Others, sometimes it doesn't show up for later. And I remember when, we, when I uh, met, my, <laughs> met my wife, you know, and it's like I'm trying to, I'm trying to sell her on, like, I'm, I'm worth hanging out with. Like, she, I had my full uh, public relations department on full press. Like, I wanted her to know how great I was. And, and like, for the first month, I was probably as good as I'll ever be until she sort of took the bait. And... Uh, I remember uh, after we got married, like within the first, I think it was the first couple of weeks, we got back from a honeymoon and we'd ordered some new furniture. And um, 
we were, uh, the first was to be delivered. And they said, hey, call this phone number and it will, they'll tell you sort of the time frame when it's going to be delivered. And so I called the number and uh, I got this, you know, message that, hey, you've dialed the wrong area code. Hang up and do it again but with this area code, this other area code. So I hung up. That's weird. This is the number they gave me. Dialed it again. And I got the same freaking message and it said, this is the wrong area code. Dial the other area code. And so for about five minutes, I'm going back and forth on this, on this merry-go-round that I want off of, and I'm getting increasingly uh, discouraged. Uh, some may say, uh, my wife would say, that's like, to put it mild, like I was getting really frustrated and angry. And after about, five, after about five minutes, I just lost it. I threw the phone across the room, and I dropped the granddaddy of them all, you know, just in my anger, the granddaddy customer of them all. And Missy was like, you know, she could have said, the sins of others appear later. That's what that means. It's like, hey, they're gonna, it's going to show up eventually, but sometimes it doesn't go before them. That's what that idea is. And so we appoint people into leadership with great thoughtfulness and patience, okay? So that's how Paul says we are to honor those who are in authority within the local church. But he's going to pivot now. He's going to stay with the idea of honoring. He's going to hit the clutch, and he's going to say, now, how do we respond to and honor those who are not within the church, okay? And he says... Uh, we're going to see that the gospel transforms the most toxic institutions and relationships within society. Let all who are under the yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they're brothers, but they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So let me remind you the context. I want to be clear. Paul is talking about slaves, bond servants. He's asking them to honor their masters. So that's what's going on here. Now, I realize that even in saying that, that's going to generate some questions beyond this passage. And so I want to take a step back for just a moment, and I want to talk about this. Okay? I want to talk about the idea of slavery. What you need to know is that in the first century Roman Empire, slavery, which in the first century, slavery was not based on race, okay, uh, had been institutionalized. It affected every corner of the Roman Empire. Rome was a slave society, front to back, top to bottom. It was an inescapable core part of the very foundation of the empire. Slaves within Rome experienced a wide variety of treatment. Some slaves were highly educated, cared for very, very well, and had the opportunity to buy their freedom. That's one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, you had slaves who were treated horribly, who were exploited in every way imaginable and who had never had the opportunity to obtain their freedom. And what I want you to hear is that there was no social construct in the first century that did not include slaves. It was everywhere. And the idea of a human being owning another human being, you need to know, goes counter to what God rolls out in the very first pages of the Scriptures in Genesis 1. We see that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. Every human being that's ever lived on this planet is made in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and honor and respect. Slavery is a result of the fall of mankind. And when we talk about indentured servitude, where someone says, hey, I wanna, I wanna, uh, I'm going to put myself in your service if you'll pay for me to cross this sea, or I have a debt, and so I'll put myself into your service. You need to know that the, the fact that that 
would even be an issue, that there would be some sort of a debt issue, that there would that happen. That's a result of the fall. The fact that, that human beings were kidnapped and trafficked in the first century in America, it's a result of the fall. Okay? And so in the first century, the church had no concept as a fledgling movement for overturning slavery. The question they asked themselves was, how does the gospel inform the way that we interact with society? Okay, slavery was a part of every corner of the Roman Empire. And so they said, how does the gospel affect how we're to live? How does the Christian ethic exist in such a society? And let me just, um, let me just take it aside for a moment and, and acknowledge that while that was the case for the first century church in terms of like their lack of authority, their lack of power and influence in society, that was not the case with America. The American church um, had the influence, it had the leverage, it had the power to radically, I think, speed up the abolition of the slavery in America, the slave trade. And there were a lot of churches that did. There were a lot of individuals who, who gave their lives fighting for the dignity of um, the slaves in America. And there was a lot who didn't. There were a lot of churches who would use passages like this to justify uh, what Scripture clearly condemns, the kidnapping of, of a human being, of a soul. And so it, the church dropped the ball. And that caused, and still causes to this day, pain and heartache and scars in this country. Okay, but that wasn't the case in the first century. Doesn't, I'm not saying it makes it right or wrong. I'm letting you know that um, I, want, I want you to think about this in a way that uh, I think is biblical. So with that, let me jump back into the passage and let's unpack what specifically Paul is saying to these men and women who find themselves in this fledgling um, uh, movement called the Jesus movement in a society where there was no, the idea of no slavery wasn't even, on, was unfathomable. How do you, how do you respond in such, a, such an environment? He's gonna address two groups of people. He's gonna address slaves who have unbelieving masters He's going to address slaves who have believing masters. In each, each instance, he's going to issue a command or a, a charge, and he's going to give you the reasons why he's giving you that, that command. So first, verse 1, Christian slaves of unbelieving masters. Paul says, regard them worthy of honor, like you would a widow or an elder. And the why, he says that uh, he's going to draw a direct line from the way that a slave regarded his master with the mission and the effectiveness of the gospel ministry. Because the reality is that in the first century and today, poor conduct in the church makes the father of that family look bad. It was true back then, it's true today. We are ambassadors for Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors. And our role today and our role, the church's role back then, whether you were a free or a slave, was to be a representative of Jesus. And when we proclaim our faith, but then we treat those whom God has put in authority over us with disrespect, it's confusing, and it causes the name of God to be reviled. That's what Paul says. And we see that happening all over the place today. We see people behaving poorly like, well, man, if that's what your God produces, I don't much think I'm interested in your God. Okay? And so Paul, now that's how he says, hey, for those who you are under the authority of a non-believing slave master, you want to serve them and show them the respect because of the role. 
Because when you do that, that's the thing that's going to transform society, as we keep talking about. And it's going to allow the name of God to not be reviled. And he goes on and says, what about Christian slaves of believing masters? He says, don't be disrespectful to them just because they're brothers in Christ. And, and the, why, the, the why for that command is because those who benefit by their good service are fellow family members and loved. Now, the question is, who's benefiting from the good service? Is it that the slaves were benefiting from the good service of the masters. And there was a clear category for that in the first century where, where slave owners were served as benefactors to those in their care. Okay, so that, that clearly existed. Or is it that the masters benefit from, from the bond servants' good behavior? And the answer is the Greek's not clear, and commentators, for good reasons, are divided on why they think that. But here's the takeaway. What's clear is that Paul wants the gospel to sweeten the relationship of those in this authority structure, okay? And the fact that, that, that these bondservant uh, masters were believers should be the thing that motivates them because they're not, they're not, the relationship is not one of authority. It's, it's one of a family relationship. It's brothers. And so into, this is what Paul says. This is what the verse 6, 1, and 2 means. Now, into this society comes Jesus, into this slave society comes Jesus, comes the gospel, and the early church. And the gospel says that all of mankind has fallen, all of mankind has fallen in need of a Savior, slaves and freemen alike. And the gospel says that once someone trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they enter into a new family where there is no distinction and there is no partiality. Paul was crystal clear on this point. Look at Colossians 3. Paul says to the church in Colossae, hey, listen, here there is no Greek or Jew. There's no uncircumcised or circumcised. There's no barbarian, no Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. And so in the family of God, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter if you're married or single, circumcised, or you are family. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And as the gospel goes out into this slave society, individuals begin to become radically transformed by the gospel. One at a time, the early church begins to be built up and established. It comes face to face with this society whose fabric is built on slavery. And what do you think happens when those two things come crashing together? How should the gospel inform those in that society? Well, let's go back and look at what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. Jesus was clear that the kingdom of God was going to start small and then grow. Jesus talks a lot of parables in this. Matthew 13, 33, he told him a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took hold and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. And so the, the kingdom of God, says Jesus, is going to start really small. It's going to be the small speck in this much larger loaf. But as it works its way through, it's going to soon take over the entire society. And kingdom people would be light in, in the darkness, Jesus was clear that when you become a part of the family of God, you become light in a dark world. Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it in a basket. But no, they, they put it on a stand. Why? Because it gives light to all the house. So in the same way, kingdom people, let your light shine before another so they may see your great works and give glory to God in heaven. So the kingdom is going to start small, it's going to grow. And as it grew, it would be the means of transformation for men and women in the first century, slaves and masters. And as lives were transformed by the kindness and the mercy of God, they would begin to what? To walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that is going to include rethinking all of the social relationships, not just husband and wife, but slave and master. 
And we see this all throughout the New Testament. We see the clear condemnation. We've already read this in 1 Timothy 1. Week 1, I taught you on this. We taught on this. That Paul condemns slave traders, those who are kidnapping. He puts them in the same category as murderers and liars and ungodly. 1 Timothy 1.10. We're going to see Paul encourage slaves, acquire your freedom whenever you can. 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to see instructions to those who are slave owners to treat their slaves justly, like without threats. You treat them like brothers and sisters because both of you belong to Christ. You're in the same family. And when you're in the same family, it nullifies the negative effects of the relationship. You become peers with that person, not the, socially, uh, the social construct. That's Ephesians 6. That's Colossians 4. Paul gives instructions to those who are under the bondage of a bondservant. He says to honor, obey, to serve sincerely as they would Christ, even those whose masters were unjust. That's Ephesians 6. That's Colossians 3. That's 1 Timothy 6. We're here today. That's 1 Peter 2. And then we see uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 a call for all Christians, slaves, free, circumcised, uncircumcised, married, single, that to recognize that your station in life is not the thing that defines you. Christians are to recognize that within the family of God in 1 Corinthians 7 is clear on this, 17 and 24. Within the family of God, you are free in Christ. If you're a slave, you're free. And guess what? If you're free, you are a bondservant to Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over your circumstances. And guess what happened then? What happens now? When the people of God take seriously the call of God, the church actually serves as salt and light. We push back evil. We, we pull back evil while we push out the kingdom of God. The lost are found. Lives are changed. The vulnerable are protected. Relationships are healed, society is transformed, and the kingdom of God continues to expand. And so, like, I don't know what relationships you're in right now. If we roll this thing forward today, some of us are working under those who are unkind and unjust. You may have, you may have an employer, students, you may have teachers or, high, or coaches uh, who are jerks. And, and God's going to say, listen, within the structure where you're being treated unfairly, you're called the same thing, to show respect for the authority. God sees it. God sees where you are. He's not, he's not absent. When we have spouses that are difficult or our kids who are rebellious, God says, listen, you lean into that with love and with kindness. That's what the gospel enables us to do. It allows us, because we've been forgiven much, to extend forgiveness and to recognize the image of God in all of humanity and to move forward because the gospel transforms the most toxic institutions and relationships in society. So listen, as, we, as I try and lay in the plane today, I do want to talk about another um, another aspect of honor that Jesus specifically talked about. Um, he was having a conversation in John 5 with some Jews who, um, <laughs> who wanted to kill him. That's what it says. And uh, I'm sure that was an interesting conversation. And Jesus responds to these men in John 5. He says, listen, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, I say to you that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And I want to just remind all of us in the room that if you have not ever come face to face with what does it mean to honor the Son of God, then can I just be honest that honoring leaders in the church and honoring your boss, that don't spend any mental equity on those. You need to spend time thinking about what does it look like to honor the Son. And I want to remind you that the Son loves you. He's not mad at you. He came um, to live a perfect life. He was betrayed and mocked, tortured, and put to death for you and for me so that we could be reconciled to God. I spent time yesterday in Romans 5, 6 to 11, just reminding myself that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And if you've never come face to face with what does it look like to honor the son, I want you to know that is of first importance for you. It doesn't just affect the way you're going to experience your job on Monday. It affects your eternal destiny. If you don't know that you're broken, that you're in need of a savior, that Jesus came to, to live the perfect life that you and I could never live, that his death created a bridge back to God that we could never build. And that bridge allows us to be reconciled to a God who loves you. Okay, so if that's new information for you, we would love to talk to you. We'll have folks down front this morning, but, but I want you to know that should be of first importance to you. Okay? Heavenly Father, I want to pray for my friends who are in the room and those who are watching online. And I, I pray for our hearts that you would um, help us to know you, that you would remind us of your great care and kindness for us, that while we were sinners, you died for us. I thank you for this letter and how you have instructed us on how we're to live in relationship with those in authority over us, within the church and outside the church. And God, I know that there are folks in this room who are under very difficult set of circumstances. And they're wondering if you see them. They're wondering if you're aware. They're wondering if you've forgotten them. And I pray that in this moment and the moments that follow, that you would remind them that you see them, that you have entered into their pain and their suffering and their isolation, that you sent your son to experience what it's like to be forsaken so that we could be brought back to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Paul, for Timothy, for the church in Ephesus, and how we can learn from them even to this day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.